Do you know who the easiest person to deceive is? Do you know who the easiest person to deceive is? Andy Stanley said the most, the easiest person in the world to deceive is the person in the mirror. It's very true, isn't it? The easiest person to deceive is yourself. We struggle with, with self-deception. Do you know how we know we struggle with self-deception or how you might know you struggle with it? Is if you've ever stood on a scale and you sucked your gut in, you know you struggle, you know you struggle with self-deception. It's something we all struggle with. In a Scientific American article called Living a Lie, We Deceive Ourselves to Better Deceive Others, Matthew Hudson wrote, People mislead themselves all day long. We tell ourselves we're smarter and better looking than our friends, that our political party can do no wrong, that we're too busy to help a colleague. We're good at deceiving ourselves. The biologist Robert Trivers suggested an explanation for why we deceive ourselves. He said, we dupe ourselves or we deceive ourselves in order to deceive others, creating social advantage. It's very true, isn't it? Thinking about it. When, you, when you're job hunting, what are you trying to do? It's to your advantage to distinguish yourself from every other candidate. So research shows that 40% of Americans lie on their resume. Why do you ever buy something you don't need and willing to go deep in debt to buy it? Well, we tell ourselves that it'll make us feel better about ourselves or we're convinced that others will look up to us or admire us for having the bigger home or the more expensive car or the better life. Is there any better example of deceiving ourselves than social media and deceiving others? Have you ever noticed everyone's life? We all have seen this. Everyone's life on social media looks great, doesn't it? People snapping selfies and they're smiling. and They're with a group of people and they're all crowded in and laughing and having fun. People are, you, people are looking at you going, oh, I wish I could have that kind of experience. And so that's what we're saying on social media. Look at my life. Isn't it great? Don't you wish you were me? So it's just not uncommon for us to deceive ourselves to better deceive others. It's quite natural. Why is that? Why do we do that? Do you know how I know that there is something inside me that isn't quite right? And I know there's a number of things, so we don't need to go into all of them. But do you know how I know that? It's because it makes me happy when the University of Kentucky loses a football game or basketball game. Isn't that awful? And I, don't, I got a lot of Kentucky fans and a lot of Kentucky fans in the room. And I've got a lot of Kentucky fans who are friends. And I love my Kentucky, my Kentucky fans and friends. But I love it when, they, when their teams lose. I don't know what it is. It's just, isn't that terrible? I mean, I grew up in Knox. I was born in Knoxville. My dad's a UT grad. I grew up rooting for the Vols. Then we moved to Louisville, Kentucky when I was about six years old. And when I grew up in Louisville, I became a Louisville Cardinal fan. And I know that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people in here, but when you're a UK fan, uh, who are two of your biggest arch rivals? Well, there's Tennessee and there's, there's Louisville. So I'm one of those. So I grew up, you know, every time Kentucky lose, a little bit of joy in that for me. But I mean, let's be honest. Did any Vol fan cry a tear, shed a tear for beating Alabama last week? Oh, I feel so bad for Alabama. No, that didn't happen. Don't. Not even a drop. You know, I, I tell you how, how weird my heart is. When my son Jake, who's like 25 now and married, when he was about six years old, he said, Dad, I think I'm going to be a UK fan. And that was like a crisis to me. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what to say. And I had to think about it. And I said, well, listen, Jake, you know, here's, here's the problem with that. 
said, we live in Louisville, not Lexington, so I can't take any games, and I, I, I don't buy UK gear, but if you want to go to UofL games with me, I'll, I'll buy you UofL gear for that. And he said, okay, I'll be a UofL fan. Manipulative? Oh, absolutely. Did it work? Yes. He's not a UK fan. He's a UofL fan. But that's inside of me. If you're, a, if you're a sports fan, admit it, you've done it. You've rejoiced when your rival has lost. But there's also something inside of us that takes a subtle amount of pleasure when, when someone else fails, not just in sports, but in other things as well. Some of you have been let go from a job before. And when they let you go, the department tanked. Or the company began to go in a, in a wrong direction. Admit it, it felt good, didn't it? Sure, probably did. Any music fans, country music fans in the, in the house? Do you remember the song from 1999, it's 23 years old now, from Toby Keith called How Do You Like Me Now? Do you remember that song? Toby Keith talks about being in high school and there was a girl who wouldn't give him the time of day, but now that he's hit the big time, he's not so subtle. How do you like me now? Uh, look what you missed out on. There's something inside of our heart that takes pleasure in that. It's probably like Republicans who were maybe somewhat satisfied to see gas prices go up. Why is that? Well, it proves that they were right about President Biden. Remember that? I did that. Remember that? You go to gas pump. I did that. A Democrat didn't put that there, right? It was a Republican. Look, look at what you... Made. Or when Democrats hoped that President Trump would die from COVID. There were some. Okay, there were a lot, right? That's just the way we're wired. Why do some people hope that... Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk go broke. Why is that? We often deceive ourselves into thinking there isn't anything wrong with us for those things. But the reason why the easiest person in the world to deceive is the one in the mirror is because the problem is the heart. The problem is the heart. French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. In other words, our heart has these reasons for doing things and reason just gets thrown out the window. The Apostle Paul once wrote, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. I mean, even the Apostle Paul said, I don't understand why I do the things I do. We think things and do things and say things that don't make any sense. Not even to us sometimes, unless we're narcissistic. And it's because our heart has weird and sometimes twisted reasons that even we don't understand. God's word, the Bible, told us what the problem is thousands of years before Blaise Pascal. Jeremiah was a spokesperson for God during a time when Israel was experiencing a lot of turmoil. And Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The reason we're so easily able to deceive ourselves is our heart. Above all things, God's word says, it's deceitful. Our heart isn't naturally good or kind or loving or patient or faithful or gentle or able to show self-control. Above all things, the Bible says the heart is deceitful. Well, Some of us might disagree with that. I'm sure a lot of people do. We would like to think that a lot of people are honorable and good and they want to do the right thing. But the Bible says the heart is so far gone that we can't fix it. It's beyond cure. 
when you do a little bit deeper study in the Bible about what it says about the heart, you go to both the Old and New Testaments, and both are fascinating in the way it kind of informs us about the heart. In the Old Testament, the word heart is taken from the Hebrew word leb, L-E-B. And the Hebrews use the term leb to refer to the inner part of a person that refers to our will, our mind, our awareness, our emotions, and our understanding. They didn't just see the heart as an organ or just emotions. As a matter of fact, thousands of years ago, people really didn't understand the inner workings of the body. The advancement in medical science, I mean, it just wasn't there. And so they didn't understand the way we thought and what motivated us and what moved us. They saw the heart as an all-encompassing way to describe the inner person. They used it to refer to moral character and determination. They saw the heart as a place of knowledge and memory and reflection, which we know, memory, knowledge, and reflection, those are functions of the brain. But to the Hebrews, those things happen in the heart. But they weren't wrong because they said it happens in the inner person. In the New Testament, written in Greek, the word for heart is the Greek word cardia. And of course, you can see the connection between cardia and cardiac. Cardia was seen as the source of spiritual life. It included the emotions experienced, the thoughts and our will. It also described the center of our longings, desires, and feelings. So the Bible doesn't just describe the heart as an organ inside of us. Our heart is us. It's who we really are on the inside. It's the inner you. It's the inner me. So the reason we are easily able to deceive ourselves is because of what's going on inside of us. What's inside of us is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Andy Stanley said, what goes on inside of us? What goes on inside of our heart isn't a problem we can solve. It creates a tension that has to continuously be resolved. It's very wise. The heart doesn't, isn't just this problem that we can solve. What goes on inside isn't just something we can make right. No, it creates a tension that we continually have to resolve. That's why Paul said, I don't understand what I do, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I hate, I do. It's one of the reasons that God's word says in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, above all else, guard your heart before everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your inner being for everything you do flows from inside. It's interesting. Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all things, above all else, guard your heart. If you mash them together, you get the heart is deceitful above all things. So above all else, guard your heart. Two different passages, they say the same thing. We spend so much time worrying about what we look like on the outside. And there isn't anything wrong with being healthy and fit and taking care of our bodies and, uh, you know, just, just taking care of the way we look. But we need to be more concerned about what's going on inside of us. There's another translation of Proverbs 4.23, which says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it is the wellspring of life. Which is fascinating to me because here we are at wellspring. And a wellspring is a source. According to the writer of Proverbs, the wellspring of life, the source of life is the heart. It's the inner you, the inner me. And here's how we understand that. If we don't understand that the heart is the source of life, we'll never be able to have the kind of life that God intended for us to have. And that's what we're about as a church. We want people to discover 
that the source of real life comes from a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, he is the creator of our heart. He is the healer of our heart. He's the shaper of our heart. So we want to point people to him. So today we're introducing a new series of sermons based on the heart, the inner life. And it really is because we believe that if we put our trust in Jesus and allow him to shape our heart or reshape our heart, then we will have the best life possible. That is not something that comes naturally to us. To a lot of people, they could never imagine turning over the keys of their heart to Christ. But we're convinced that when people put their lives in Jesus' hands, when they trust him with their heart, their inner self, he makes life the best it can be. So this series is called After God's Own Heart. And during this sermon, we're going to be looking, series, we're going to be looking at a man who saw God differently. He saw life differently. He saw himself differently. And we're able to hear his stories and we're able to read what he wrote and see how God shaped his heart. And his name was David. David is known as a man after God's own heart. Now, does that mean that David's heart always reflected the heart of God? Or does it mean that David is always chasing after what God's own, God's own heart for him should look like. Was it this or is it that? And I think, honestly, both can be true. David lived 3,000 years ago, and his life was anything but ordinary. If you're familiar with his life story, he was born the youngest of seven brothers in Israel during a very tumultuous time in Israel's history. The Israelites said to God, they said, we want a king. And God said, well, you got me. You've got me as a king. And they said, no, we want a king like all the other nations around us. And God said, no, you don't. And they said, yes, we do. We want a king. We want a king. And so God gave him a king. God anointed a man named Saul to be their king. And Saul was very impressive. He was tall. He was an imposing figure. He had this executive presence about him. Some say he was probably about seven foot tall. He was a head taller than every other Israelite. He was an impressive looking man. But on the inside, Saul was insecure. And he struggled with being patient with God. And he struggled with obedience. And after one particular time of disobeying God's direction, God said, you're not going to be king forever. And and one day when you die, your sons are not going to inherit your throne. So God sent the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse. Jesse had seven sons. And Samuel said, Jesse, one of your sons is going to be king after Saul. Can you bring them all out? I want to see them. And Jesse brought out his six oldest sons. And they were impressive young men. They were good looking. They had that executive presence again, if you will. And Samuel looked at the first one and thought, well, surely this is the one. Look at this guy. He's very impressive. And God said, that's not, that's not the one I want to be king. He went to the second oldest and said, well, what about this one? This one, oh, this one's got to be it. Look how impressive he is. And he's smart too. No, that's not the one who I want to be king. Looked at the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth sons. And, and even though they were all impressive, none of those were the right one. And Samuel said to Jesse, Jesse, is this all your sons? And Jesse said, well, there's one more. He's out in the field tending the flocks. Je- and, and Samuel said, well, send him in. Go get him. And up walked David. And God said, that's the one. Now, David was impressive. It says he was ready or full-blooded and handsome. But it wasn't what David looked like on the outside that God saw. It was what was on the inside. When choosing David, God's words are recorded in 2 Samuel 16, 7. God says, 
I don't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I, I look at the heart. David's heart was so much more important to God than his physical appearance. You may be familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Maybe you grew up hearing about it when you were a kid, or maybe you've never heard the story before, but there's a, there's a story in the Bible where the Israelites are facing their rivals, the Philistines, and there's a valley between them, and they're both camped on hills on opposite sides. And every day for 40 days, a giant of a man named Goliath would come down from the Philistine side and he would stand right in the valley and he would shout up at the Israelites and he would curse God and question their courage. And he would say, why doesn't, send somebody out to fight me. And he says, if, if I'm victorious, you will be our slaves. If you're victorious, we will be your slaves. And he would shout curses and shout curses about God. And nobody was courageous enough to step forward and face him. David hadn't been there the whole time, but his father sent him to check on his brothers. And he gets there and there's Goliath shouting his curses from the valley below. And David's like, who is this guy? And why won't anybody fight him? And and nobody had a really good reason. So David said, well, I'll fight him. And here was David, a young teenager, willing to go up against a man who some scholars say was nine foot tall. And David was used to protecting the sheep. And so he was good with a slingshot. So he went to the brook and got five smooth stones And Goliath started shouting at him when they got close in the field of battle. And David just whipped his slingshot, released a stone and hit Goliath right in the middle of the forehead, knocked Goliath down. David went over and picked up Goliath's sword. I imagine it probably weighed 150 pounds and just chopped off Goliath's head. Only a young man with godly character and fortitude could have taken on Goliath, let alone win. And for that, David was adored by the Israelites. They loved him. They shouted his praises, which made King Saul very jealous. And Saul began chasing after David, looking for a way to kill him, which would cause David to run for his life. And there was a time when Saul and his army were chasing David, and David had his men with him, and they were exhausted and trying to find some kind of shelter and try to hide from Saul. So it says that they hid in the back of a cave. And about that time, it says King Saul had to go to the bathroom. He had to relieve himself and he didn't want to do it in front of everybody. So there's this cave and King Saul walked in to go potty. And David and his men were in the back of the cave. And the men said to David, David, look, there's King Saul. Now's your opportunity. You can slice his throat and you can become king. But David said, no, not me. Saul was chosen by the Lord. He is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to lift a hand and, and hurt him. But what he did do is he crept up and he cut off the hem, the edge of one of Saul's robes and then went back to his men and deeper in the cave. And when Saul was finished, he got dressed and he left and the men and his army and Saul started marching away and David came out to the front of the cave and he said, King Saul, King Saul, why do you say that I'm trying to hurt you? Or why do you listen to people who tell you that I'm trying to kill you and that I'm wanting to be king? He said, look. And he raised up that little piece of the garment of the robe that he had cut off and he said, don't believe men when they tell you that I'm trying to take your kingship. And King Saul had this weird heart thing going on because in some ways he admired David, but he also was jealous of him at times. And he was so embarrassed. And he said, David, you're a much better man than I am. And then he ended the chase. 
David was a man of character. But eventually, God had said, after a while, Saul, you will no longer be king. And Saul and his, brother, Saul and his sons were killed in a battle. And at the age of 30, David became king over all Israel. A thousand years after David, in Acts 13.32, the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of people about David and about his rise to the throne. And Paul quotes 1 Samuel 13.14. It's going to be up on the screen. It says, After removing Saul, he, God, made David their king. And God testified concerning David, I have found David a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. It's not other people who said David was a man after God's own heart. It was God who said David is a man after my own heart. And a man or woman after God's own heart is a person who will do everything God wants him or her to do. But that heart is deceptive. Even David, who God said was a man after his own heart, would be deceived and betrayed by his own heart. One of the stories from the life of David that we'll look at during this series is the account of how David took another man's wife for his own and had her husband killed. The amount of self-deception and deception in the story of David and Bathsheba is shocking. Even a godly man or woman has to watch out for the deceptions of the heart. And you're probably thinking, man, you, you guys have no idea what's gone on inside of me or the things that I've done or said or thought. Honestly, none of us. Nobody in this room would want a movie made of all our faults and failures. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes' mystery, mysteries, loved practical jokes. And as a joke, he once sent a telegram to, to each of 12 friends. And all were men of great virtue and respected in society. And the telegram simply said, flee, all has been discovered. To a shock, within 24 hours, the story goes, all 12 had left the country. Now, there may be some exaggeration in the story, but the point is that all of us have dark secrets that can haunt our consciousness. Why is that? Because at one time or another, every one of us has fallen to the deceptions of the heart. So the question during this series is not just how could God consider David a man after God's own heart, but knowing what we know about ourselves, how can we ever become men and women after God's own heart? That's going to be the focus of the series. How could David, a murderer, a violent man, an adulterer, a liar, ever be known as someone after God's own heart? And how can we? So how do we resolve this tension? Because it's not a problem we can solve. One of those ways is through worship. Worship. It might sound funny here, but it's worship. To be a man or woman after God's own heart we need to be men and women who worship. Now, what do I mean by worship? Because when I was young, I didn't understand worship. I thought worship was something I went to an hour on Sunday. That's not worship. That's something, that's a thing, that's a noun. Uh, I, I didn't always want to go to worship. I didn't always want to go to church when I was a kid growing up. Sometimes I wanted to stay home and watch Star Trek on TV. Dad, I don't feel good. Can I stay home? Sure, you can stay home. But I'd watch Star Trek. I know it sounds weird. You did it too, so no big deal. We're all in the same boat, right? But I thought it was something I went to. But as we get older, we understand it's not a noun, it's a verb. It's something that is done, not something we go to. It's not something like an hour on Sunday. It's something we do. And here's a, here's a tip for you. God has wired you for worship. You're like, my heart is so far from worship. I, I can't even imagine that. Well, that's not true. We are all wired to worship. Something. 
Now, it may not be God. We can worship our work, our money, our family, our cars, our sports teams, or other people. We can worship ourselves. But everyone worships something or someone because we are wired for worship. The question is, what are you worshiping? You have a choice. There is something that takes that is at first place in your life. It's your biggest priority. What is that? The great news is that you've been created by God to be able to choose what you worship. So what is worship? What does worshiping God look like? Worship is ascribing worth to God for who he is and what he's done. It's very simple. Worship is ascribing worth to God for who he is and what he's done. When we sing, what are we doing? We're ascribing worth to God for who he is and what he's done. When we pray, what are we doing? We're ascribing worth to God for who he is and how he has led us and guided us through very difficult times and how he has a future and a hope for us and we're putting our trust in him. When we give, what are we doing? We're ascribing worth to God and we're saying, God, we trust you to take care of our finances. We trust you to take care of my family. When we listen to a sermon, what are we doing? We're saying, I'm I'm ascribing worth to you, God, because I believe your word is true and I'm going to look to put it into practice. When we take communion, what are we doing? We're ascribing worth to God for the fact that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. That's what it is. Worship is ascribing worth to God. And David ascribed worth to God in worship. If you have a real Bible, and, and I know I use my phone a lot. I don't carry my Bible around as much as I used to. But if you have your Bible, if you have a real Bible, you know, if you open up to about in the middle, you open up to this book of Psalms. It's, it's in the Old Testament, but it's about midway through, wouldn't you say? You open up right to the middle and it's the book of Psalms. And the word Psalm means songs. And most scholars suggest that David wrote about 73 of these songs, songs of worship to God. They they were about uh, him ascribing worth to God for who he was and what he had done. And David wrote most of these at all kinds of crazy times in his life, before he became king, after he became king, when things are going great, when things are going bad, when he was very happy, when he was very content, when he was very insecure and very unsettled. You can see the emotions, the thought, the mind of David, the heart of David in the words of the songs. And there's a lot of people who will use these to pray. It's called praying the Psalms. Like, I don't know if you've ever done that before, but maybe you decide, okay, I'm not going to come up with my own thing. I'm just going to pray maybe something. David prayed. David was a shepherd. Remember, David wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But what some people do, they'll sit down with the Bible and, and out loud they will read this psalm as a prayer to God, they'll say, Lord, you are my shepherd. And with you, I won't be in want. You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside quiet waters. You restore my soul. The psalms bring comfort to hear people's emotions and thoughts and everything they're going through and have them poured out on paper. Now, David didn't write all the psalms. Um, Many are written by other people. But when I was a freshman in Bible college, I was like 18 years old, like most people are when they go off to college. And college for me was like the best of times and worst of times. It was the best of times because I had some freedom and I was meeting new friends and having a good time. And uh, 
a good time in a Bible college kind of way, not in a buck wild kind of way that some kids do at regular college. I was having fun, but not in a crazy way. But there, there was a lot of fun. But at the same time, there was this part of me that was dealing with insecurity and loneliness. It's that weird time. Everybody goes through it as you get older. Like when you're a kid, you're 16 or 17, right? But when you get to be about 18 or 19, you're kind of in that transition phase. You're too old to be a kid. You're not old enough to be an adult. So it's just a weird time. And I remember it was the middle of the afternoon. It was about 3 or 3.30 and I was in my dorm room. I had the curtains closed. And I just felt lonely and insecure. And and I I just was sitting there. You've done it. You just sat there. And I thought, I'm going to open the Bible. That's a good idea, right? When you're in Bible college, open a Bible. I thought, I'm just going to open a Bible, which actually wasn't as easy as it sounds. But I had this big bulky black New American Standard Bible that I pulled out and I just, you know, opened it. Now I got it marked, but I literally just opened it to the middle, which means what? It went to Psalms. And I really did this thing where I went and just put my finger down. And I read these words, whom have I in heaven besides you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near my God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. I never forgot it. You know, it was one of those things where exactly at the right time, that's what I needed to hear, that God is my refuge. He's my strength. And I thought it's pretty cool that I could just kind of do that, right? You know, you just open it up and put your finger down and those are the words that come out. That was no accident. Those words brought me comfort and peace, the kind of comfort and peace God wanted me to hear. And when we open up our hearts to God in worship, you will hear exactly what God wants you to hear. Maybe you came in today and you've been trying to work things out on your own. And you've been like leaning on your own strength. But today you're reminded you need to put your trust in Christ alone. Or that God needs to be magnified in your life more now than ever before. Or maybe we needed to hear that, you know, my heart, I mean, I'm, I'm fooling myself. And where this has taken me is going nowhere. I really need to. Stop allowing my heart to deceive me and start putting my trust and faith in Jesus. When we open up our hearts to God in worship, God makes sure we hear exactly what we need to hear. So when you come into worship, come expecting to hear what God wants you to hear. Don't just come because it's an hour to fill. Come because God's going to speak to you through either the words or a prayer or a communion time or a message. And it's going to draw you closer to him. Every funeral is a little bit different. I've, I've done dozens, um, dozens. Some for the young, some for the old. Some who died naturally and some tragically. In some there's gratitude for what God has done um, in someone's life. And it's like, I'm so thankful for my mom's life. And they said, she's been suffering the last few years. So I'm so glad that God's called her home. And at others, it's just been brutally sad. About three weeks ago, a man who I was just getting to know 
Troy Bird song, Suddenly Passed Away. Troy and I were similar in age. We had only gotten to know each other at the men's retreat. And then like two days later, we, we wrapped that up on Sunday and by Tuesday he was gone. When we were planning the service, I met with Troy's wife, Tony. And Tony made it clear to me that at the end of his service, she wanted to sing. She wanted to worship. And Troy and Tony hadn't been at Wellspring long, but Troy was about to begin singing with the worship team, just like the folks up here do every week. For years, he had sung on the praise team of their previous church. So at the end of Troy's celebration of life service, Tony wanted to worship. And Rob, at the very end, he got up and he was going to lead us. He did a great job. You know, Rob is very talented. He's a really great preacher for being such a young man. He's great in leading worship. He leads students well. He can't hit a golf ball for a lick. But all the other things, he's really great. But Rob led us in worship, and together, during that time of experiencing grief, we just worshiped. And we thank God for the fact that he was a way maker, the light in the darkness, even in the midst of a darkness called death. And we thank God for his amazing grace and that we are thankful that he removes the chains that hold us down, which reminded us that Troy's chains were gone forever and that he had been set free. And then we closed with a song that reminded us that in spite of the passing of a loved one, God is good. Together we worshiped. And on the other side of a door... Troy worship too. See, one day, you and I are going to die. Statistics say that one out of every one person dies. It's, it's inevitable. And after you and I are gone, people are going to gather together and are going to eat a meal and they're going to eat potato salad and coleslaw and ham. And while they're eating, what are you and I going to be doing? Well, we're either going to be doing one of two things. We're either going to begin our experiencing, experience of worshiping God forever or we're going to regret not being able to worship God ever again. Folks, men and women who are men and women after God's own heart begin worshiping now in order to be prepared for eternity. You know, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song of decision. And every week we do this, we all stand, we sing a song. It's a beautiful song. But really what we hope is that we will surrender our lives over to Christ. They will say, Lord, I've I've been kind of pointing my own direction, doing my own thing. Lord, I want to trust you to lead me where you want me to go. And I want to turn my heart over to you, turn my life over to you. And today as we sing this song, if you want to make that decision, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'm just going to be right over here. If you want to talk to me during the song or after the service, just come on up. We can talk about it then. But let's stand and sing. Let's commit our heart to Christ.